0: Chapter Thirteen of Volume Two of Eleanor's Victory by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eleanor Howard, Greencastle, Indiana. An Old Man's Fancy. Although Eleanor Monkton's utmost watchfulness revealed to her nothing that could be twisted into a proof of Lancelot Darrell's identity with the man who had been the indirect cause of her father's death she made some progress in another quarter very much to the annoyance of several people amongst whom must be included the young painter maurice de crespigny who for some years past had not been known to take an interest in anything exhibited a very great interest in gilbert monckton's young wife the old man had never forgotten the day upon which he had been suddenly carried back to the past, by the apparition of a fair-haired girl who seemed to him the living image of his lost friend. He had never forgotten this, and when, a few days after Eleanor's arrival at Tolldale, he happened to encounter her in one of his airings, he had insisted on stopping to talk to her, much to the aggravation of his two maiden warders. Eleanor caught eagerly at any chance of becoming familiar with her father's friend. It was to him she looked for her promised vengeance. The law could give her no redress. But Maurice de Crespigny held in his hand the disposition of that wealth for which his young kinsman hoped, and thus possessed power to punish the cheat and traitor who had robbed a helpless old man. Even if this motive had not existed, Eleanor's love for her dead father would have been sufficient to inspire her with every tender feeling towards the owner of woodlands. Her manner, modified by this tenderness, acted almost like a spell upon Maurice de Crespigny. He insisted upon coming, in the course of his daily airing, to that part of the grounds where the two estates were only divided by a slender wire fence, and where he might hope to meet Eleanor. By and by he extorted from her the promise to meet him on every fine day at a particular hour, and it was in vain that the maiden sisters endeavoured by every stratagem they could devise to detain him indoors at this appointed time. They were fain to pray for perpetual wet weather, for storms and fogs, whirlwinds, and other caprices of nature, which might keep the invalid a prisoner to the house." but at last even rain and tempest ceased to be of any avail to these distressed and expectant spinsters, for Maurice de Crespigny insisted upon inviting Mr. and Mrs. Monckton to Woodlands. They were to come whenever they could, every day if they could, the old man wrote, with a tremulous hand that was apt to go a little astray over the paper, but which was yet strong enough and firm enough to inscribe a decent signature at the foot of a will the two sisters never saw him write without thinking of this document. Was it made, and made in their favour? Was it yet to make? Or was it made in accordance with the expectations of Ellen Darrell and her son? Lavinia and Sarah de Crespigny were agonized by the mere thought of this latter possibility. It was not the money alone that they thought of, the lands and tenements alone that they considered. There was the family house in which they had lived so long the household treasures which their own careful hands had dusted as things too sacred to be approached by meaner fingers there were the old silver savers, the antique tea and coffee services the great dragon china jars on the staircase the inlaid card-tables in the green parlour would the ruthless young man come into possession and seize even upon those particular household gods which were most sacred to the maiden sisters they knew that they had no claim to any great mercy from lancelot darrell had they not urged his indian voyage and for ever offended him by so doing it would have been better perhaps to have been friendly towards him and to have suffered him to remain in england and to be as much at woodlands as he pleased thereby affording him ample opportunity for giving offence to his great uncle who can count upon an old man's caprices thought the maiden sisters Perhaps because our uncle has seen very little of Lancelot, he may be all the more kindly disposed towards him. On the other hand, there was now the more imminent danger of this sudden fancy with which Eleanor Monkton had inspired the invalid, and the sisters grew paler and more lugubrious every day as they watched the progress of this eccentric friendship. Gilbert Monckton placed no obstacle in the way of his wife's visits to Woodland's, he knew how sternly the doors of Mr. de Crespigny's house were guarded against his widowed niece and her son, and he knew that there, at least, Eleanor was not likely to meet Lancelot Darrell. Mrs. Monckton was therefore free to visit her dead father's friend when she pleased, and she was not slow to avail herself of this privilege. It was of vital importance to her to be on familiar terms with Maurice de Crespigny, to be able to enter his house when and how she would she saw enough in the old man's face in the fearful uncertainty of his health which one day suffered him to be bright and cheerful and on the next laid him prostrate and helpless upon a sick-bed to convince her that his state was terribly precarious he might linger for years he might die suddenly he might die leaving his fortune to lancelot darrell the sisters watched with ever-increasing alarm the progress that Mrs. Monckton was making in their uncle's favour. The old man seemed to brighten under the influence of Eleanor's society. He had no glimmering idea of the truth. He fully believed that the likeness which the lawyer's young wife bore to George Vane was one of those accidental resemblances so common to the experience of every one. He believed this, and yet in spite of this he felt as if Eleanor's presence brought back something of his lost youth. Even his memory was revivified by the companionship of his dead friend's daughter, and he would sit for hours together talking, as his nieces had not heard him talk in many monotonous years, telling familiar stories of that past in which George Vane had figured so prominently. To Eleanor, these old memories were never wearisome, and Maurice de Crespigny felt the delight of talking to a listener who was really interested. He was accustomed to the polite attention of his nieces whose suppressed yawns sometimes broke in unpleasantly at the very climax of a story, and whose wooden-faced stolidity had at best something unpleasantly suggestive of being listened to and stared at by two Dutch clocks. But he was not accustomed to see a beautiful and earnest face turned towards him as he spoke, a pair of bright grey eyes lighting up with new radiance at every crisis in the narrative, and lovely lips half-parted through intensity of interest." These things the old man was not accustomed to, and he became entirely Eleanor's slave and adorer. Indeed, the elderly damsels congratulated themselves upon Miss Vincent's marriage with Gilbert Monckton. Otherwise, Maurice de Crespigny being besotted and infatuated, and the young woman mercenary, there might have been a new mistress brought home to Woodlands instead of to Toldale Priory. Happily for Eleanor, the anxious minds of the maiden sisters were ultimately set in some degree at rest by a few words which Maurice de Crispigny let drop in a conversation with Mrs. Monckton. Amongst the treasures possessed by the old man, the relics of a past life whose chief value lay in association, there was one object that was peculiarly precious to Eleanor. This was a miniature portrait of George Vane, in the cap and gown which he had worn sixty years before, at Magdalen College, Oxford. This picture was very dear to Eleanor Monckton. It was no very wonderful work of art, perhaps, but a laborious and patient performance, whose production had cost more time and money than the photographic representations of half the members of the lower house would cost to-day. It showed Eleanor a fair-haired stripling with bright, hopeful blue eyes. It was the shadow of her dead father's youth." Her eyes filled with tears as she looked at the little ivory portrait in its oval case of slippery red morocco. Crocodile, thought one of the maiden sisters. Sycophant, muttered the other, but this very miniature gave rise to that speech which had so much effect in calming the terrors of the two ladies. Yes, my dear, Maurice de Crespigny said, that portrait was painted sixty years ago, "'George Vane would have been close upon eighty if he had lived. "'Yes, close upon eighty, my love. "'You don't see your own likeness to that picture, perhaps. "'People seldom do see resemblances of that kind. "'But the lad's face is like yours, my dear, "'and you bring back the memory of my youth, "'just as the scent of some old-fashioned flower "'that our advanced horticulture has banished to a cottager's garden "'brings back the grass-plot upon which I played at my mother's knees.' Do you know what I mean to do, Mrs. Monkton? Eleanor lifted her eyebrows with an arch smile, as who should say, Your caprices are quite beyond my power of divination. I mean to leave that miniature to you in my will, my dear. The maiden sisters started simultaneously, agitated by the same emotion, and their eyes met. Yes, my dear, Maurice de Crespigny repeated. I shall leave that miniature to you when I die. It's not worth anything intrinsically, but I don't want you to be reminded of me when I am dead and gone, except through your own tender feelings. You have been interested in my stories of George Vane, who, with all his faults, and I'm not slow to acknowledge them, was a brighter and a better man than I was, and it may please you sometimes to look at that picture.' "'You've brought a ray of sunlight across a very dismal pathway, my love,' added the invalid, quite indifferent to the fact that this remark was by no means complimentary to his devoted nurses and guardians. And I am grateful to you. If you were poor, I should leave you money. But you are the wife of a rich man, and beyond that my fortune is already disposed of. I am not free to leave it as I might wish. I have a duty to perform, my dear.' a duty which I consider sacred and imperative, and I shall fulfill that duty. The old man had never before spoken so freely of his intentions with regard to his money. The sisters sat staring blankly at each other, with quickened breaths and pale faces. What could this speech mean? Why, clearly that the money must be left to them. What other duty could Maurice de Crespigny owe to any one, had they not kept guard over him for years, shutting him in, and separating him from every living creature? What right had he to be grateful to any one but them, inasmuch as they had taken good care that no one else should ever do him a service? But to the ears of Eleanor Monckton the old man's speech had another signification. The blood mounted to her face, and her heart beat violently. He is thinking of Lancelot Darrell, she thought. He will leave his fortune to Lancelot Darrell. He will die before he learns the secret of my father's wrongs. His will is already made, no doubt, and he will die before I can dare to say to him, Your niece's son is a trickster and a villain. This was the only occasion upon which Maurice de Crespigny ever spoke of his intentions with regard to the fortune that he must leave behind him. He said plainly enough that Eleanor was to have none of his money, and the sisters, who had until now kept a jealous watch upon the old man and his favourite, were henceforward content to let Mrs. Monckton come and go as she pleased. But for all this Eleanor was no nearer the accomplishment of her great purpose. Lancelot Darrell came to Toldale, and in a certain easy and somewhat indifferent manner paid his homage to his affianced wife. Laura was happy by fits and starts, and by fits and starts utterly miserable when the horrible pangs of jealousy, jealousy of Eleanor, and jealous doubts of her lover's truth, tortured her breast. Gilbert Monckton sat day after day in the library, or the drawing-room, or Eleanor's morning-room, as the case might be, keeping watch over his wife and the lovers. But though the days and weeks went by with an unnatural rapidity, as it seemed to Mrs. Monckton, with a wearisome slowness in the opinion of her husband, the progress of time brought george vane's daughter no further onward by so much as one step upon the pathway which she had chosen for herself christmas came and the girl whose youth had been spent in the shabby lodgings in which her father had hidden the poverty of his decline the patient young housekeeper who had been used to eke out ounces of tea and to entreat for brief respite and grace from aggrieved chandlers was called upon to play my lady bountiful at Toldale Priory, and to dole out beef and bread, blankets and brandy, coals and flannels, to a host of hungry and shivering claimants. Christmas passed, and the new year struggled into life under every disadvantage of bad weather, while the spring, the dreaded early spring which was to witness Laura's marriage, approached with a stealthy footfall, creeping day by day, nearer and nearer. Eleanor, in every despair, appealed to Richard Thornton. She appealed to him from force of habit, perhaps, as a fretful child complains to its mother, rather than from any hope that he could aid her in her great scheme. "'Oh, Richard,' she wrote despairingly, "'help me, help me, help me! I thought all would be so easy if I could once come to this place. But I am here, and I see Lancelot Darrell every day, and yet I am no nearer the end. What am I to do?' January is nearly over, and in March Laura Mason is to marry that man. Mr. de Crespigny is very ill, and may die at any moment, leaving his money to his niece's son. Is this man, who caused my father's death, to have all the brightest and best things this world can give? Is he to have a noble fortune and an amiable wife? And am I to stand by and permit him to be happy? "'remembering what happened upon that dreadful night in Paris, "'remembering that my father lies in his unconsecrated grave "'and that his blood is upon this man's head. "'Help me, Richard. Come to me. "'Help me to find proof positive of Lancelot Darrell's guilt. "'You can help me, if you please. "'Your brain is clearer, your perception quicker than mine. "'I am carried away by my own passion, blinded by my indignation.' you were right when you said I should never succeed in this work. I look to you to avenge my father's death. End of chapter 13 of volume 2